Well, thank you, Ching and Dr. Salazar. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's a real honor to be here, uh, a lecture name for Dr. Altman. I've had the pleasure of knowing Arnie for, for many years, and in fact, I think you edited, if not the first, one of the first textbooks on pediatric hematology oncology, and that book is still on my shelf. Now, for some of the younger folks, a book is a bound volume of paper <laughs> that sits on a shelf, but for people of my generation, we still actually take these books and, and, and uh, consult them. So today, I'm going to talk about the development of targeted new agents for children with cancer. And before I get into that, I think it's helpful to answer the question, well, why do we need new drugs for children with cancer? Childhood cancer is often pointed to as a success story of research, but I think um, understanding the historical context of why it's so critical that we develop new approaches, it can be quite helpful. Um, the easiest way to understand that is to look at a child who was uh, diagnosed with cancer in the 1960 and contrast a child diagnosed with the same disease in the year 2000. So a child diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, the most common malignancy of childhood, had a less than 10% chance of cure non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a less than 20% chance of cure, and children with a renal tumor, Wilms tumor, had a less than 30% chance of cure. That same child, born in the year 2000, has about a 90% chance of five-year event-free survival with ALL, similarly for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and Wilms tumor. So when people say research has resulted in success, this is the data that rightfully drives that story taking largely incurable diseases and making them into largely curable ones. But not all, uh, progress has not come to all childhood cancers. Children with AML, despite significant intensification that includes stem cell transpl uh, transplantation, about 40% of those children still succumb to their disease. Children with high-risk neuroblastoma, uh, just uh, almost two-thirds succumb to their disease. And for some diseases, like brainstem glioma or DIPG, we've made virtually no progress. But let's look at the success story, understand how we got to where we are, and then talk about moving forward. So if you look from uh, the mid-60s through the mid-90s, every generation, there was a significant increase in I know what that is. <laughs> um, every generation, there was a significant increase in outcome. And if you look particularly from uh, the very late 60s into the 90s, you might surmise that this was a heyday of drug discovery, that what was driving these cures was, in fact, the discovery of new drugs to treat ALL. Well, these are uh, the 11 drugs that we use today to treat most children with ALL. And what's quite remarkable is that these drugs were discovered in the 50s and approved, these drugs in the 60s, and only one drug was approved in the 1970s. So all the drugs that we needed to go from 10% cure to almost 90% cure, we've had since 1970. Question is, well, how did we use those drugs and what changed? Well, it began with discovery. We learned that ALL was not a single disease, it was a very heterogeneous disease, and different types of ALL re required different types of treatment. But in the 1960s, platelet transfusions needed to be discovered. Bleeding was a major problem 
Chemotherapy-induced thrombocytopenia was a major problem. Platelet transfusions didn't exist. So transfusion support was a significant advance in the 60s. In the 70s, we had a burgeoning of broad-spectrum antibiotics. We learned how to manage children with febrile neutropenia, something that we do routinely that fills a hospital here today on, on the oncology ward. That data emerged in the 1970s. In the 1980s into the early 90s, cytokines, growth factors that could help the bone marrow reco recover and shorten the duration of neutropenia was a key advance. And throughout this entire time, our ability to care for the critically, a critically ill child improved significantly. But what we learned to do is to take the same drugs and intensify them for certain subsets of children with leukemia, and in fact, intensify them to remarkable degrees to go from 10% to 90%. Well, of course, that strategy has come at a price. If one looks today at what children with high-risk cancer, any type of high-risk cancer, experiences during treatment, at some point during therapy, more than four out of five children experience severe life-threatening or fatal toxicity. 80% of children, severe life-threatening or fatal toxicity. Nowhere else in medicine would this be considered remotely acceptable. We don't use drugs that results in 80% severe and life-threatening toxicity, except in pediatric oncology. We've been forced to do that in order to achieve cure. But not only are we dealing with uh, acute toxicity, we're dealing with late effects. Virtually every organ system in the body can be impacted by the treatment we give, and more than half of the survivors of childhood cancer experience significant long-term effect of treatment. So when people ask, why do we need new drugs, I think it's easy to summarize. We have to improve the cure rates. Despite all the progress we made, uh, childhood cancer remains a leading cause of death from disease in children. We need to diminish acute toxicity and minimize the risk for late effects. What I'd like to do now is give some examples of recently completed as well as ongoing or planned studies of targeted new agents to give you a sense of our approach. I think the best place to begin is, in essence, where targeted therapy began at the turn of this century, talking about pH positive or Philadelphia chromosome positive, and then pH-like acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So with respect to Philadelphia chromosome positive leukemia, the story began in 1960. Uh, Peter Noel and, and David Hungerford were uh, investigators at, in Philadelphia, and they noticed on, on uh, chromosome preps that every patient with an adult cancer, chronic myeloid leukemia, every patient had a minute chromosome when they did this. And it became the first demonstration of a, a direct link between a chromosomal change and a cancer. And so these minute chromosomes became pathognomonic for the disease CML. It was more than a decade later that Janet Rowley uh, from Chicago discovered how these minute chromosomes were generated, and in fact was able to show that they were a result of a translocation. In this case, it was a translocation between chromosomes 9 and, and, and chromosome uh, 22 to result in a new chromosome, but that new chromosome was in fact quite small, and it had uh, a translocated gene. It was more than a decade later that we understood what the molecular basis that resulted from this, the BCR-ABLE um, 
translocation that resulted in a new fusion oncoprotein. And that's where the field stood for quite some time until Brian Drucker, uh, now at Oregon, said, well, BCR ABL, ABL is a kinase. A kinase is an enzyme. There should be a way to inhibit that enzyme. And he went to, at first, Sibagaygi, Sibagaygi that was bought by Novartis, because he knew they were developing a large library of small molecules that could inhibit kinases. Uh, Novartis was not interested. They did not think it would be possible to develop a drug for a rare leukemia. CML is a relatively rare leukemia in adults, but it's far more common than, than ALL in children. But Brian found that signal transduction inhibitor 571, so 571st compound in their library, was an extremely potent and specific inhibitor uh, and, and could, in the laboratory, uh, eradicate CML cell lines. He then went into the clinic and in very short order, in a randomized trial comparing historical combination therapy with um, uh, imatinib, which is what STI-571 has become to know, known by or Levec, and showed that the differences in major cytogenetic responses were dramatic, and more importantly, or as importantly, that these remissions were long-lived. And this was a record uh, time frame. In less than three years, they went from first uh, study in man to drug approval, and it ushered in an era of targeted therapy. And the hope was that there would be other molecules like imatinib that could transform a disease. Well, that hope hasn't been realized uh, with few exceptions, but it, it transformed how we think about cancers and transformed how we develop drugs for cancers by understanding the molecular basis and then developing specific uh, drugs that could potentially target the, uh, the molecular basis driving those cancers. Well, for children with, uh, for pediatrics, we were obviously very uh, interested in this approach. CML is an extremely rare uh, disease in children, but it does occur. But uh, the same translocation or the same gene product occurs in a subset of children with ALL. Uh, the difference is uh, the, the, in the breakpoint cluster region um, and the length, the length of the new transcript, but the functional results are the same. So there's a subset of children with ALL whose leukemia is driven by the 922 or BCR able translocation. And what we have known is that the prognosis for these children, despite all efforts at intensifying and bringing uh, new cytotoxic drugs to them, remained uh, far behind the prognosis for other children. About three out of four children with uh, pH positive ALL um, uh, throughout the 1990s still succumbed to their disease. Well, this is at a very high level what ALL therapy looks like today. We break it uh, down into multiple phases, induction therapy, then there's phases of consolidation, reinduction, intensification, reinduction, ultimately maintenance. The whole therapy takes about uh, two and a half to, to three plus years. Uh, the first six to eight months are very intensive with a, uh, a large uh, likelihood of repeat hospitalizations. But we took what was the most uh, effective cytotoxic chemotherapy that we knew, and we then integrated imatinib and ultimately showed that we could actually give this small molecule inhibitor continuously to any child with pH positive ALL. And the results were quite dramatic. We transformed the disease where three out of four children died to one where three out of four children were cured. 
We, have now, we are now going on to look at second and third generation inhibitors to further improve upon this. But for these approximately three to 5% of children with ALL, targeted therapy indeed had a dramatic in impact. Nonetheless, it's a very small subset of children with ALL. Well, with this new era of discovery and the new tool, genomic tools that we have in hand that uh, Ching is uh, one of the world's leading experts in, um, the NCI funded a program uh, called TARGET, uh, Therapeutically Applicable Research to Generate Effective Treatments, an acronym that someone obviously stayed up very late at night uh, to come up with. Uh, and the targeted initi initiative for certain high-risk cancers did a deep genomic dive to try to understand the drivers. And one of the first uh, successes came out of studying uh, children with high-risk ALL. Shown here are the, is a gene expression profile of the, of the various types of ALL, T-cell ALL, mixed lineage, TEL-AML1, the most common uh, pre-B lineage, and so forth. And down in the bottom here, clustered the small percentage of children with uh, Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL, BCR-ABLE, but they were actually a much, part of a much larger group with the exact same gene expression profile, except that they lacked BCR-ABLE. And so work um, done by Charles Mulligan, Catherine Roberts, Mignon Lowe, showed that this larger group of leukemias were characterized by Icarus deletions or changes in CRLF2 or JAK lesions. The important takeaway was that, well, we knew by giving a specific inhibitor of BCR-ABLE, we could potentially transform pH-positive leukemia. Could we potentially do something for this larger group? Uh, prognostically, we know that this group with pH like ALL also doesn't fare as well. Now, the outcome uh, for children with leukemia is dependent on age. But even um, uh, looking at the, the younger children, clearly at 50% survival, lagging behind uh, our other patients. And more importantly, as we learned about what the fusion oncoproteins were <laughs> making up this class, there were groups that we predict would be inhibited, uh, inhibited by uh, another kinase inhibitor to satinib, and yet another group called JAK2 that could be inhibited. So we're doing. We're taking the exact same approach. We're trying to now, we're diagnosing all children with high-risk ALL, doing the molecular tests, seeing if they're not only Philadelphia chromosome positive, but if they have a pH-like lesion that we can add a targeted drug to, and those studies are still ongoing. Well, the next example is uh, a relatively rare type of lymphoma, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, or ALCL. And I choose this uh, example in part because it also demonstrates one of the constraints we have in pediatric oncology, as that in that all the diseases we care for are actually rare or ultra-rare diseases. Industry does not have an economic model to develop new drugs for ultra-rare pediatric cancers, so we're reliant on drug development that occurs for more common adult cancers and seeing if those drugs, in fact, are relevant to pediatric cancers. So ALCL represents about 15% of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which generally is dominated um, by Burkitt's lymphoma, or mature B-cell, and T-cell lymphoblastic lymphoma. 
And we've known for um, over 20 years, about uh, actually now close to 30 years, that anaplastic large cell lymphoma is also driven by a fusion oncoprotein. In this case, uh, nucleophosmin is fused to, to ALK. That's the knowledge we had in hand since the 19, uh, early 1990s. Well, Pfizer um, was developing a drug uh, that would inhibit what was thought to be a very important oncoprotein uh, or kinase for adult cancers called CMET. And all of these targeted therapies have varying degrees of specificity. And in this case, they were developing an inhibitor for CMET, but they also noticed that would inhibit ALK, but that was not really important to them. CMET was supposed to be the most important target for a number of adult cancers. So Pfizer developed this small molecule. They went into the clinic in 2006. And then about uh, a year and a half later, publication came out that a small subset of patients with non-small cell lung cancer were driven by ALK. They said, aha, this will be easier. We actually have an ALK inhibitor in clinic. We just haven't really told people it's an ALK inhibitor. So they quickly changed their protocol, started studying patients with ALK-driven non-small cell lung cancer, and within three years had an approved drug because of its dramatic effectiveness in non-small cell lung cancer. Well, again, uh, those of us in pediatric oncology were obviously quite interested in ALK because we knew it was driving anaplastic large cell lymphoma, but there was also emerging data that ALK might be uh, important for a subset of patients with neuroblastoma. So quite quickly, uh, and I believe in 2007, uh, we began discussions, and then within uh, 18 months, we went into a, the clinic uh, with a phase one, two study, and this is what uh, Krizotnik was called. It was Pfizer 023, et cetera, et cetera. This was the first child with uh, refractory anaplastic large cell lymphoma that was enro uh, enrolled. Uh, this, uh, transplant had failed this child, multiple chemotherapy regimens, and you can see widespread disease in, in the neck, uh, in, in the thorax, as well as scattered uh, retroperitoneal nodes. Within one cycle of an oral inhibitor, a complete remission. So a very dramatic response. We're always quite cautious that an observation in the first patient on the study might also be the outlier. So uh, we were waiting to see what would happen with the other children, and quite dramatically, um, in phase one, we studied a number of doses. We ultimately enrolled 26 patients with anaplastic large cell. Uh, independent of the dose we studied, uh, from 165 milligram per meter square to 280, dramatic responses. 81% uh, of children went into complete remission, 8% uh, went into partial remission before going on to uh, consolidation transplant setting uh, treatment. So almost 90% uh, objective response rate in a highly refractory population, we have not seen and had not seen this type of efficacy since crizotinib in uh, pH positive, uh, since imatinib in pH positive leukemias. Well, at the same time, um, a conjugated antibody called brintuximab vindotin uh, was, was being developed, and the antibody uh, targeted an antigen that is universally expressed on anaplastic large cell lymphoma, a lymphoma that occurs not only in adolescents but in young adults. It's conjugated to uh, a cytotoxin. And 
the results that emerged almost in parallel with our experience were quite dramatic. This is called a waterfall plot. So each patient sums up this, the measurements of their tumor at baseline and whether their tumors uh, decrease in size or increase. Generally for new drugs, you don't see many lines below, uh, below the bar, but in this case, all but one of the patient's tumors uh, decreased and many de decreased uh, dramatically and ended up in complete remission. So within, within a very brief period of time, we went from a disease where we'd been unable to make any progress to one in which we had two new targeted agents. We had a small molecule inhibitor uh, against ALK, crizotinib, and we had a conjugated antibody against the target universally expressed, uh, CD35. When we looked historically at our outcomes uh, over the last 30 years, um, nothing we did changed these curves. Essentially, 70% um, of, uh, the best we could do would be 70% event-free survival. A small fraction of those children could be salvaged uh, with stem cell transplant. But no matter what we did, we ended up at about the same 70% 70 70 mark be it with highly intensive or somewhat less intensive chemotherapy. But importantly, um, we understood that resistance to chemotherapy really came in two waves. There were some children who essentially were resistant right out of the gate. At diagnosis, they had chemo-resistant disease, and then there were others who developed resistance. And so we recognized that if we were gonna make an impact and move the needle here, we would have to bring in our targeted agents right at diagnosis. If we waited six or 12 months, we would already um, uh, be failing a significant fraction of these patients. So we designed a study to take the very best chemotherapy and see if we can co could combine it with a targeted antibody, combine it with a targeted small molecule, and perhaps what was uh, one of the better achievements or greater achievements is we got two different drug companies to work together um, on a single trial. That, that, for any of you who do drug development, that was no small accomplishment, but both drug companies understood the importance of doing this and understood in, in the rare disease space the necessity to collaborate. So this study has rapidly accrued. Um, the results we think should be available within the next two years, and if the results are as we anticipate, the next step will be to, to combine the targeted agents and see if we could significantly back off on uh, the cytotoxic chemotherapy that results in the greatest toxicity. Well, let me turn now um, to medulloblastoma. Uh, and it's really been in the last two to three years that our genomic understanding of all brain tumors has accelerated dramatically. Uh, and the ability to bring targeted agents to this uh, group of children has increased significantly. But medulloblastoma is one of the more common pediatric brain tumors. It represents 20% of all childhood brain tumors. Its treatment is clearly multimodality. It is uh, surgery, chemotherapy, craniospinal radiation, and despite that uh, multimodal, multimodal intensive approach, about 30% uh, of children uh, succumb to their disease with 70% achieving five-year survival. Medulloblastoma serves as one of our uh, great examples of the significant late effects our toxicity, uh, our treatment can result in. So uh, children who have five-year survival, the story does not end there. 
we uh, will negatively impact um, the lives of these children um, for, for decades. So it is a high priority to uh, come up with less toxic approaches uh, for these patients. We now know that medulloblastoma is not a single disease. Um, most recently, we've grouped it into four groups. That now is expanding into, into more groups. But molecularly, we know there's a group that's driven uh, by the wind pathway, somewhat larger group delivered, uh, uh, described by the changes in the sonic hedgehog pathway, and then two other distinct genomic groups which are being further subdivided. So this presents both an opportunity and a challenge, but the first opportunity was actually for patients whose uh, medulloblastomas is driven by WINT. So if you look at all uh, patients, you can see that the outcome for children with medullas driven by WINT is significantly better than everyone else. Um, be it children or be it in the rare adult, if you have the WINT aberration with current treatment, you have an excellent chance uh, at uh, five-year uh, event-free survival. And so here was an opportunity that we could identify a subgroup of patients that perhaps we could reduce the toxicity of our treatment. Um, we know what the short and long-term effects are. Do we need to deliver the same intensity of treatment to these patients? The challenge, though, is well, how are we going to identify these children? So if you look, um, the WINT group uh, comprises about 10% of all children um, with medulloblastoma. How are we going to rapidly identify um, these children? And this has become the first example, and, and Ching mentioned it, is that we recognize that molecular diagnostics are going to be central to virtually every childhood cancer. And if we're going to do this at a national or international level, we have to have a way of centralizing and expeditiously identifying subsets of children who might have a molecular aberration for which we have a specific uh, clinical trial. So a few years ago, we launched uh, Project Every Child. What Project Every Child is, is a single protocol for all children with cancer agnostic to the type of cancer. If a child has cancer or a suspicion of cancer, they're eligible to enroll. And it serves a number of purposes. But um, these include eligibility screening, biobanking for future research, tracking their outcome. It serves as a national cancer registry, as well as an ability for us to follow these children and contact them in the future if there are research opportunities. For the medulloblastoma protocol, it allows us to screen for WINT. So that study is now up and running. Children with suspected medulloblastoma are enrolled in Project Every Child. A portion of their tumor goes to our reference laboratory. We do the molecular testing, and there's a certain number of confirmatory tests. And if we find that their medulloblastoma is driven by WINT, they're offered participation in a research study that aims to diminish toxicity of current therapy. Well, let me turn now to the next example, and that is the sonic hedgehog pathway. So this is uh, now a young adult um, who has something called Gorlin syndrome. And what you can see uh, on the back and neck of this young man are innumerable numbers of basal cell carcinomas. So Gorlin syndrome, um, and they're, they're actually in a very distinct pattern. They're in the pattern of the radiation field. So this a young man had medulloblastoma, received craniospinal radiation, and within a very short number of years developed innumerable basal cell carcinomas. 
uh, and the link then between a subset of children with medulloblastoma and Gorlin syndrome uh, and basal cell carcinoma was made. Gorlin syn syndrome is a multi-system disease. These patients in uh, relatively early adulthood develop multiple basal cell carcinomas. Radiation therapy rapidly accelerates the development of these basal cell carcinomas. And we know that these are driven by uh, a mutation in patch. And patch is part of the sonic hedgehog pathway. It's a signaling pathway that goes through smoothen and ultimately through glee. And this was something that, that we've known for over, over 20 years, actually over, I think, close to 30 years, the association between Gorlin syndrome and a subset of children with, with medulloblastoma. Now, this story, one has to go out to the Pacific Northwest to understand how drugs were developed for, for this. There was a shepherd who noticed that uh, certain sheep gave birth to cy cyclopean lambs that for some reason there were lambs born with a single eye. And he figured out that if the sheep would graze on a particular corn lily, that is what predisposed them to develop cyclopean lambs. This was a shepherd who sorted it out and solved his problem of making sure his sheep didn't go near the corn lilies. Well, People then studied what was in the corn lily and found that there was a teratogen that was in there that was specific to binding and blocking smoothened, part of this uh, signaling pathway. A small drug company at the time then said, let's see if we can uh, screen for other small molecules of sonic hedgeyes-induced glee expression. They understood this pathway. They now had a lead as far as um, a way to target this. Genentech then bought Curis, and they developed a drug which is now called Vismotogen. This pathway is known to be uh, important in a subset of patients with basal cell carcinoma whose basal cell carcinomas can be quite refractory to treatment. This was um, a young adult with medulloblastoma who, that was enrolled on the adult clinical trial for Vismotigib. Medulloblastoma is one of the few tumors that can metastasize outside of the central nervous system. You can see here really innumerable uh, bone metastases in this young man. Within two months of uh, receiving Vismotogen, a complete remission, but the remission was short-lived. But nonetheless, a proof of principle, a small molecule inhibiting medulloblastoma driven by sonic hedgehog would have activity. Um, the Pediatric uh, Brain Tumor Consortium, a smaller consortium that does early phase trials in children with brain tumors, did uh, uh, two studies looking at Vismotigib in patients with recurrent medulloblastoma. And they reported their results here. Now, this is not a waterfall plot. This is uh, progression-free uh, survival. And so in this case, the taller the bar, the, um, the longer sur uh, the survival. In blue um, uh, are the patients uh, who had aberrations in sonic hedgehog pathways. And what you'll see is this drug only worked for patients with uh, aberrations in sonic hedgehog, but only a subset of patients, and a relatively small subset of patients, would have extended progression-free survival. Most patients, when they did have um, uh, a response, that response was short-lived. So the hope that we would continue to identify drugs like Levec, imatinib, that could transform and give long-standing remissions turns out to be the exception. Most of the inhibitors we're, de we're developing as a single agent 
may have efficacy, but cancers still um, emerge that are resistant to that approach. So now let me turn to the most common uh, extracranial solid tumor in children called uh, neuroblastoma, a, a tumor of the peripheral nervous system. Uh, High-risk neuroblastoma was one of the first examples I gave you where progress has been slow. Um, but here you can see the, the overall progress. For the, the, the top curve is our most current, uh, the outcome of our most current uh, clinical trials in terms of event-free survival. We're at about 40% 40, um, 40 of patients through very intensive therapy that, uh, that includes surgery, radiotherapy, intensive chemotherapy, autologous stem cell transplantation, and now immunotherapy, we have pushed the curve to 40%. Um, progress is there, but progress is, is slow. So there are two potential targeted agents. One I briefly mentioned earlier, that a subset of children with neuroblastoma uh, appear to have neuroblastoma that's uh, driven by ALK, and therefore we have a small molecule inhibitor of ALK that we could include in current therapy. But the other really, I think, challenges uh, our definition of targeted therapy, but we've actually had targeted therapy for this disease for um, uh, more than 25 years, or closer to 35 years. Um, this is a tumor of the sympathetic nervous system and one of the neurotransmitters, neuro, norepinephrine. What investigators noted uh, many decades ago is that neuro, most neuroblastoma cells retain the norepinephrine uptake pathway. So that's a normal pathway that the neurotransmitter is uh, uptaked again into the neuron, and that pathway is intact in, um, in patients with neuroblastoma. And so a, a drug that took advantage of this used an analog of um, uh, norepinephrine and added a radio label iodine to it. And this is uh, meta, in the meta position, I131, iodobenzylguanidine. And this was very specific to most neuroblastomas. This radiolabeled molecule is taken up avidly by neuroblastoma. And so uh, for many, many years, we have looked at MIBG in the recurrent setting. And in fact, it's one of our most effective uh, drugs in the recurrent setting, um, a phase two study done by Kate Mattei um, in San Francisco with, with John Maris in Philadelphia and a number of other sites across the country, looked at the responses and the durability of the responses for children treated with radio-labeled MIBG in the relapse setting. And overall, about 35 plus percent achieved a complete or partial response and these are children where getting any type of response is quite unusual in, in the relapse setting. So we've known for quite some time that MIBG uh, is able to pr uh, produce responses in the refractory setting. The question we're now asking is, can we leverage that information and improve uh, treatment in the upfront setting? So a study that will open uh, within the next within the next month is gonna do just that. And at a high level, just to show you how complicated and intense our treatment is, for children with uh, high-risk neuroblastoma after generally open biopsy, 
they get chemotherapy, we do some molecular testing to, uh, to stratify these patients, and then we're going to randomize them. So traditional therapy now is uh, to give two cycles of topotecan cyclophosphamide, harvest their bone marrow for autologous transplant, go on to receive two more cycles of very intensive chemotherapy, resect the primary tumor, continue with chemotherapy, and now give two autologous transplants with two different regimens, followed by radiation, and then ultimately followed by consolidative uh, immunotherapy. This is the most intensive treatment we give to children. This is what we have to do to get to 40% uh, event-free survival. But these two are the children that invariably have, uh, those that have survived have late effects, virtual uniform levels of hearing loss, of uh, growth retardation, of endocrine dysfunction, you can go down the list. So again, because therapy tends to fail relatively early in this population, we're gonna ask the question, does MIBG, uh, given early in treatment, improve the outcome? That's the primary question. Now, results uh, from neuroblastoma trials uh, don't emerge necessarily in a logical order. They emerge when they emerge, and there was a study that came out of Europe um, that looked at a different transplant regimen, in this case, Bumel, and found that Bumel appeared to be better than our transplant regimen, but we found that two transplants were better than one. So we're gonna try to sort all this out in a single study. Uh, as part of that, all children at a diagnosis will, um, there will be some children who, I'm sorry, have, do not, their tumors do not, uh, uptake MIBG, so they won't receive that. But then we will identify the approximately 8 to 12% of children whose tumors are driven by ALK, and they will receive crizotinib integrated with therapy uh, throughout. So that study will be opening shortly, but it is, again, the paradigm of understanding the molecular drivers, and when we do have a targeted agent, incorporating that targeted agent uh, right from the diagnosis, when we have uh, a targeted but more toxic agent, also trying to incorporate that early in treatment. Well, I would be, would be remiss in coming from Philadelphia to not briefly talk about CART-19 immunotherapy. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means in this, but uh, chimeric antigen receptor T cells, where one re-engineers the T cells to engage CD19 positive ALL, the most common uh, antigen expressed on pediatric ALL, and really, uh, I would say, a revolutionary advance in our ability uh, to treat ALL ha has emerged. Um, uh, Shannon Maud and Steve Grupp's group, along with uh, Carl June, uh, this February published the outcome of CAR-T therapy, and fortunately, the FDA gave it a name that no one can possibly pronounce, and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to try. Um, but this look at a, uh, the results of all the phase one and phase two patients, all whom were highly refractory, virtually all of whom uh, stem cell transplant one or more had failed, who were then treated with CAR-T cells, where cells are phoresed, uh, re-engineered, there's some um, uh, cytoreductive therapy given then reinfused within a few weeks and that is the in entirety of the treatment and these cells and uh, target and expand uh, within the body. Um, 
the study by, reported by Shannon, 170, 107 patients were screened, 92 uh, were enrolled. Um, not all of those patients uh, uh, were able to receive the cells back. Um, a number progressed before they could get the cells. Some had adverse uh, events uh, and some simply couldn't tolerate it. But of the 75 um, who underwent um, uh, T-cell reinfusion, um, 48 remained in follow-up. And here is what is uh, a quite remarkable curve. The bottom line of event-free survival um, seems to be plateauing at, a, at around 50% for a highly refractory uh, relapse group of patients. Um, and so in an era where for decades our modalities included chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and surgery, we now clearly have a fourth modality, immunotherapy. And it, its impact um, is dramatic. It is not without side effects. Um, but here we're able to um, uh, to salvage a significant fraction of children with refractory ALL. Our approach in pediatrics is always to say, well, we would much rather prevent the relapse. Uh, can we use CAR-Ts uh, and how would we use CAR-Ts uh, in children with newly diagnosed patients? Um, but importantly, uh, this drug was uh, recommended for approval in July by the FDA's advisory committee, and then ultimately was approved. This is a picture of Emily Whitehead, the first child treated in Philadelphia. Um, at the time of the FDA approval, she was the first patient and is, is now a long-term survivor. How then we, we move this uh, newly approved treatment, and this is newly approved first in children which is also uh, remarkably uh, rare for a cancer, uh, cancer therapy. Um, this is our plan. So uh, we still, at a high level, group patients with newly diagnosed leukemia into two risk groups, uh, NCI standard risk or NCI high risk. But we very quickly then uh, repartition these patients into a range of uh, risk groups from very low um, to what we call very high leukemia. And it's driven both by molecular diagnostics as well as by uh, early response to uh, therapy as measured by something called minimal residual disease. But we have enough experience and enough, enough uh, leukemia specimens in the biobank knowing their outcome that we're able to identify a group of patients who we know within 30 days of diagnosis that our ability to keep them in remission is quite poor. Less than 50% of vent-free survival for our uh, very high-risk group. With this knowledge in hand, many, many centers, once we know this, are sending their patients for allogeneic stem cell transplant. And while that does improve the outcome, it also comes at a remarkable cost in terms of toxicity. Um, uh, so the plan is to see if we can give CAR T cell therapy uh, to these children. Um, here is just the data that supports that MRD is, if you are MRD positive at the end of consolidation, a test to look for a small amount of residual leukemia in the bone marrow, your outcome is poor. So the plan is to identify these children within the first two months of treatment if they in fact are MRD positive 
to uh, harvest our cells and as opposed to sending them to transplant to see if we can uh, achieve long-term cures with, um, uh, with CAR-T in, in, in its place. So with that, I think it's best that I stop here and uh, not talk about uh, an upcoming match study. I'd be happy to talk to folks later. But again, it's been an honor to give uh, the Dr. Altman lecture, and thank you for your attention.